back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 108. It's the 23rd of June, 1988, and the South Africans, Cubans, Angolans, Americans and Russians have gathered in Cairo for negotiations over the future of Namibia, and the Cubans were going to be seething. American Secretary of State for African Affairs Chester Crocker opened up the meeting by presenting the Cubans and Angolans with Pretoria's comprehensive proposals. The South Africans then made themselves scarce during that presentation. Defence Minister Magnus Milan, Foreign Minister Pick Boerter, were joined by the Chief of the Defence Force, Johnny Heldenes, as they headed off to the British Commonwealth War Cemetery at Heliopolis to lay a wreath for the fallen South Africans. They had no wreath, so they took a bowl of proteas from the first-class lounge of the Boeing 747 that had brought the delegation to Cairo and had a wreath made up in the Egyptian capital. Then the South Africans headed back to the Hyatt El Salam Hotel, site of the conference. The Cuban delegation, led by Jorge Caspar Risque, was infuriated by Pretoria's suggestion that Havana moved soldiers out of southern Angola in seven months. They were even further incensed by the suggestion that UNITA leader Jonas Savimbi be brought into a transitional government within six weeks. Risque said if this was the case, then the system of apartheid had to be added to the agenda and negotiated at the same time. Pick Boerter, never one to stand back, suggested that Driske's own Cuban government be placed on the agenda too for its human rights abuses. And then Chester Crocker, like all good referees, called an early half-time so that all sides could calm down. No one mingled in Cairo that night. The South Africans were now convinced that their rooms were bugged, so they marched off to the bottom of the garden and huddled behind a giant colourful umbrella. Meanwhile, Crocker met with Russian representative Vladilen Vlazev, who then summoned the Cubans and the Angolans to a late-night chat behind their own colourful umbrella in a separate corner of the Cairo Hyatt Garden. Miraculously, the Russian intervention led to the Cubans and Angolans managing to find a few common ideas with the South Africans, although they still differed on virtually every point. The talks hadn't completely broken down, and all sides agreed to take the documents home with them to try and find a way to get a consensus before the next meeting. As with these things, there's usually another spurt of bloodletting before everyone sees the light, and this was going to be extremely painful for the South Africans. What Pretoria did not realize was how pushy Fidel Castro was being behind the scenes. He told Dos Santos that Havana had had enough. The island was facing its own economic headwinds. He could no longer afford the 55,000 soldiers he had sent to Angola. Publicly, Castro was telling the Cubans and the world that the SADF had walked into his trap at Quito Guanavali and that the Angolans had defeated the mighty South Africans. He boasted of minimum casualties and then mentioned something which had perturbed Pretoria, that the Cubans were marching towards the Kuneni border with Southwest Africa. The Cubans had diminishing confidence in the MPLA government and also realized that whatever Luanda was saying, they could not defeat UNITA. The rebel movement looked like it could continue fighting for decades longer and the accelerating economic disaster facing Angola and Cuba meant time was up. Despite all of this, Pretoria's political leadership really believed Castro was the danger that wouldn't go away and could not fully appreciate what was going on behind the scenes. The National Party government had convinced itself of the utter existential threat of the Roy Khofar, and it couldn't change its narrative. It had locked itself into a militarization cycle. Castro had warned the Russians about backing the last push into southern Angola. So too Cuba's General Rafael del Pino 
calling the region a black hole. It was chewing up so many soldiers' lives. When Fapla got into so much trouble in the first battles around the Lomba, he'd sent thousands more troops from Cuba to add a bit of spine to the Angolan fighting spirit, and it had worked. He'd also replaced the Cuban conscripts with the much more deadly 50th Division who were regulars and crack regulars at that Castro's personal force. By November 1987, 15,000 more Cubans had arrived, including their best pilots, along with the most prestigious man in the armed forces, Major General Arnaldo Ocoa Sanchez, who lined up a kind of A-team leadership, including Major General Leopoldo Sintrafrios, Brigadier General Patricio de la Guardia Font, and Brigadier General Francisco Cruz Porsal. These men had been in Angola earlier, helping fight in 1975 and 1976, and they had taken over the planning of the counter-offensives, which caused the South Africans so much trouble outside Quito, Guanabali. By the third battle of the Tumpo, on the 23rd of March, Cuba had sent an entire regiment to the east of Quito, Guanabali, along with the tactical tank group. While the SADF was fixating on this area, Castro made another decision along with his generals. Ocoa Sanchez began moving thousands of men directly south towards the southwest African border, directly opposite of Bumbaland. That was more than 400 kilometers west of the main fighting around Quitaquanabali. There were at least 3,500 Cubans here, and they were being monitored by the SADF. At first, Ocoa Sanchez had kept these men more than 300 kilometers north of the cutline, Basically, just inside the area, they knew that the SADF could invade with ease. Keeping them inside SADF Intelligence Island as well, and inside the reconnaissance unit's view. However, Okoa Sanchez began moving the Cubans south through the first months of 1988, and this threatened to open up a western theater of operations to more conventional fighting like it had in the east around Quito. The SADF was still conducting contact operations in the west against Swapu, that side of this war had never ceased, and on April 18th, the Cubans killed an SADF major who was leading a follow-up op against Swapu. Then a medical orderly was reported lost. He was part of SADF 51 Battalion Force. Corporal de Toy's body was found later in a shallow grave. These two deaths were signs that Swapu ops were increasing, and the Cubans were providing important support. Less than a month later, on the 4th of May, a Cuban company attacked members of 101 Battalion inside southern Angola. The battalion was in a recon 50 kilometers inside Angola near the Kuneni River and was ambushed by a Cuban platoon. Lance Corporal Hendrik Jakubis Venter was killed and Private Johan Papenfuss was listed missing. This had hardly happened to the South Africans in 23 years of fighting. Things were changing. Papenfuss was duly wheeled out in Havana, a prisoner of war, now being treated for serious wounds to his leg. It was doubly embarrassing because Papenfuss was apparently being well-treated. The propaganda war was won on this occasion by the Cubans. Pretoria's political leadership cursed their bad luck and demanded a retaliation for this humiliation. The South African government had forgot its main strategy and the truth that revenge is the meal best served cold. Commandant Jan Hochart was approached and told that he should plan an attack on the Cubans in the Western Theatre, just as he had planned earlier attacks in the east. First reports, though, were not encouraging. 51 Brigade and 101 Battalion NCOs and officers reported that Swapo was now being supported by Cubans and Angolans in armoured cars, tanks and even deploying artillery. The old days of the South African firepower was gone. Now they were being outpowered as they foot patrolled or 
conducted recons using caspers and trucks. Hogart pitched up in Oshikati from Rundu. It's a 450-kilometer flight, and that was in late April, where military intelligence briefed him that the Swapo force was based around Tachipa. That's a small town inside Angola to the west of the Kenini River, 50 kilometers north of the cut line. Swapo was apparently congregating here for a push into Avambaland. Hochart was under pressure to launch a direct attack on the area using a mechanized mobile force, but he wasn't satisfied with the intel. He requested that Avambaland Sector Commander Brigadier Chris Sufentain agree to a couple of recce groups being sent in first to obtain more specific information. Hochard was also aware of another development that had shifted the impetus in this war, that the Cubans were rebuilding the airstrips at Kahama, which is 125 kilometers north of the border, and Zangongo, only 65 kilometers north. They had also rebuilt a bridge across the Kanini River at Zangongo, which had been blown up all the way back in 1981 during Operation Protea. The experienced men in the SADF knew what all of that meant, a second front was being developed, and worse, the air war had also moved west and south towards their critical bases, including Oshikati. The MiGs were already reported to be taken from Kahama, no longer from Lubango, 300 k's north. For the first time, South African radar picked up MiG-23s flying within 20 kilometers of Oshikati and Undangwa inside southwest Africa, both critical SA Air Force bases. This was a shocking development, but at the head of the Air Force, Colonel Dick Lord, said all these sightings were only at high altitude. Still, the men on the ground were looking up and not seeing any South African Air Force attempts at attacking these MiGs. There's a kind of obtuse comment made by some inside the Air Force about all of this, saying that they knew that the Cuban pilots wanted to test the South African response time, so they didn't respond. That's a dumb comment. Sorry, folks, the real reason is that the SA Air Force, according to its reports and documents, just didn't have what Colonel Lord called suitable fighters to try and take on the MiGs. By the first week of May 1988, Hochart had set up his tactical HQ in Drokana, which was right on the Angolan border, directly south of Kahama. He wanted to send three to battalions, four-man teams towards Tichipa, but this was going to be far more difficult than it looked. And that involved the environment. The idea was to send Sergeant Pete Fauri with three men into the Devangula mountain range, about 20 kilometers to the west of Tachipa. Then they'd move to its left or further west and approach from the north, the area likely to be least monitored. Fauri had six days to complete this task, which sounds fair until you take a look at the map. This is almost totally open ground. There's very little cover. And worse, the civilians in the area were utterly opposed to the South Africans and many were also in local civil defence organisations. Fauri had to move at night in the semi-desert with its rocks and clumps of small bushes. There was no water and no food, so these men carried large packs and then split up just before daybreak to lie low. It was exhausting work. After three days, Fauri realised that his team was in no condition to do a proper recce, even if they made it to Tichipa, so he asked to pull the mission. Hochart agreed, disappointed but knew that if any of the Rekis had been captured like Papenfuss, it would have been more propaganda material for the Cubans and the Angolans. So the choppers were sent to extricate Fauri and his men. The SADF believed the Cubans were accelerating their build-up and working in tandem with Swapo. Intel was picked up that the Cubans were actually moving south down the Koneni River Valley and were now only 25 kilometers north of the important Kaluke Dam. That was 12 kilometers inside Angola, 
but a vital water point for Avambaland, and the SADF had controlled the dam since 1975. Then something took place politically that changed the maths of the war. As Hochart pondered his options, in the north, on the 27th of April, Major General Francisco Cruz Porcia was killed by his own side. That's because he was trying to follow in another Cuban general's footsteps, Brigadier General Del Pino, in attempting to defect to the United States with a group of officers. This was quite a story. American CIA and intelligence had arranged for the general and about 26 others on board an Antonov 24 to be granted asylum in the U.S. So Borsia planned this mission and named it after the other Cuban revolutionary loved so much, almost as much as Castro, Canilo Cienfuegos. He took off on a routine flight from Juambo, but it turned towards the southwest African border soon after takeoff. What he didn't know was that the radio frequency used for the operation had been detected and the pilot was duly ordered back to Huambo, but he refused. Then MiG-23s were scrambled and shot down the Antonov. Hochart was told shortly after this that the Cubans would try to make a point and escalate the war in the southwest, something which General de Pino, now safe in his home in the U.S., said would never happen. It's hard to imagine now what was going on. Pretoria believed Castro's bluster, but his own men were in two minds. They were afraid of taking on the SADF directly, but the men along the cut line had no way of testing all these hypotheses. There was no way that the SADF could take the chance of ruling out any Cuban attack on their strategic dam. Given all the attention the area was receiving, it was actually growing more likely. What was going on? Where were the Cubans? What were they building? Hochart had to find out. So after Sergeant Furi had recovered from his previous recce, he was sent to the southeast of Tachipa. This was flat, rolling countryside, with more thickets to use, but it was also more heavily patrolled by the Angolans. The vegetation was also found in isolated clumps, which actually made it easier to track possible trails between these hideouts. Fapla was moving tanks around this area in groups of four, and these tanks would be sent to literally tear up the little clumps of vegetation, their tracks driving back and forth until they'd crushed everything inside. Taking shelter somewhere here during the day was going to be extremely dangerous. The Rekis left from an area downriver of the Kaluke Dam on board two Mercedes-Benz trucks, then headed as close as they dared towards Tichipa during a daring daylight move. At last light, Faree and the men jumped off the trucks, hoping not to be spotted, while the two vehicles headed home. The four Rekis walked all night, then laid up in the day. They moved like this for three days until reaching an area around four kilometers east of Techipa. It was 9 a.m. on the fourth day when the men, who were lying prone in one of the clumps of bush and the grass, saw two Fapla soldiers behind them. Being under orders to take prisoners, they jumped up, but one of the Fapla men sprinted off. The other was rooted to the spot. Facing him were four South Africans who looked like devils, their hair long and matted, black as beautiful polish over their faces and arms. We scared them said Faree. Now they had a problem. The other man was going to alert authorities and patrols would be sent, so they moved with their prisoner as quickly as possible in a southerly direction. While they went, they questioned the prisoner. Then, at around 4pm, the artillery and Tachipa opened fire, hitting the area they had vacated. That night, the South Africans made their prisoner lead them back to the base, taking an extraordinary chance. They followed the bed of the Tachipa River, which flows eastwards through the little town. 
It was a new moon, so everything was dark. The Fapla prisoner was terrified and made no noise. Then they began to hear Cuban voices, people speaking in Spanish. Faree said later he was shaking, extremely tense. But that moment was extremely important. They had had no confirmation until then that the Cubans were this far south. Now they knew with certainty Castro's men were a few kilometers away from the Caluque Dam. These were conventional soldiers who were eating noisily, clanging their food tins. After picking up a few more bits of information, the South Africans and the POW moved towards the perimeter. Then they stumbled on trenches. Faree suddenly realized with a jolt that they'd gone through the entire outer wall of the defenses without knowing it. They managed to make it out, then walked around 10 kilometers southeast of the town. Faree was excited about the POW. Surely the man was going to provide them with more details and possibly turn into another one of the Angolans who decided to fight for the SADF. He radioed HQ and received a bit of a shock. I could hardly believe it when they told me to let the prisoner go. But he was stunned. He has refused to say why his superiors made the call, but he did as he was ordered and watched as the POW disappeared into a nearby Shona. What was worrying him in particular at that moment was the sign of a large patrol in the dust, so without further ado, the recce team moved off south, making another four kilometers that night, then laying up. They heard Spanish voices again on the road even further south, something that his own HQ found difficult to believe. But they did believe him, despite their apparent surprise. Not only did they believe him, but added his intel into the growing pile of documents that seemed to indicate that Del Pino may have been wrong. The Cuban numbers had escalated from 2,000 to close to 10,000 in southwestern Angola between November 1987 and June 1988. Some of these were patrolling within 20 kilometers of the cutline, and they weren't just any old troops. These were the crack 50th Division, backed up by up to 100 tanks, including advanced T-64s. They also moved mobile radars to the south, along with anti-aircraft missiles, including SAM-8s and SAM-13s. A full artillery regiment was stationed in the southwest. That was just the start. Besides these men, the Cubans had begun to integrate their units with Swapra's movements and they had taken over the role that Fapla had played as shields. Cuban historians, though, say this was all done to force the South Africans to the table to negotiate. They would never have tried to invade Southwest Africa at all, knowing that the locals would fight tooth and nail had they tried. But imagine, if you can, hearing all of this at the time. The MiGs in the air, the Cubans on the ground, the strategic dam so close to all this heavy firepower, and the fact that the dam was actually inside Angola, not Southwest Africa. You could forgive anyone for believing the worst. But unfortunately, for 11 South Africans, the worst was yet to come, as they went to test just how much control the Cubans had gained over the area. That is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, Totsins. Mm-hmm.